Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. Good morning, Matt. And good morning to you, too. And is it still morning there? No, no. It's afternoon. Good afternoon to you. It's in that horrible zone between waking up and having realized the day exists, but way too early to get into the drinky zone. So I've I've picked a terrible time for our recording, but how fortuitous that we decided to spend all of yesterday writing show notes for this episode and then the first thing you messaged me this morning was yeah just tear those up honda yeah no you say that you picked the worst time but i think you picked the best time because we're going to have some real interesting insight in just a few minutes and that is because we are joined by two guests but first let me tell you that uh, we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves we aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Now, I super, super promise we're going to talk about the Red Bull Honda thing. But first, we've got a couple of guests lining up in the shed. We are, of course, joined by XF1 CEO of Lotus, uh, Matthew Carter. Hello, Matthew. Good morning. Good morning from Montreal. Ah, good morning from Montreal in your office environment. So this is a more uh, suited and boot- booted, business-minded Matthew Carter, not relaxed dad, Matty C. Ish, yeah. A very <laughs> different man. <laughs> and your colleague that you've brought along with you today. Do you want to introduce uh, Phil to us, uh, Matthew? Yeah, so this is uh, this is Phil Smirnoff. He is um, my business partner and he is also has a an interesting background um, working within uh, IndyCar, F1, and Formula E, which I'm sure we'll get into shortly. Yeah, and a bit I think of NASCAR. <laughs> and some NASCAR as well. Um, so it's yeah. Phil Smirnoff, you are legitimately a track designer, and when people get all upset about turns and runoff, and, oh, why is that fence there? Why isn't there piles of 
gravel with a dragon hidden in it to come up and like breathe fire onto drivers that break track limits. All of those complaints can be directed like soundly at you for a lot of top flight motorsport. Well, I take him in and I redirect it to the FIA and I don't take the blame. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want to explain to us, to our audience a little bit about, uh, you know, your background and some of the stuff you've, you've done within track design? It's a great question. Uh, do you have time now? <laughs> yeah, of course we do. Of course we do. Uh, well, it all started back in 2011. I, I got the chance and opportunity to work with the gang in Montreal at the F1 over here at the circuit in terms of uh, operations. And the first thing they did to me is, was uh, to send me to Edmonton. Mm. If, you live, uh, if you're aware of Edmonton, it's because it's very boring and you know that. So I had to uh, design and, and build a racetrack uh, for the 2011 and 12 Indy in Edmonton, right. which was my first experience and quite challenging. I had no idea what I was doing, but hey, pulled it off. <laughs> and uh, one thing led to the next. I uh, got the opportunity to, to, to manage the operations and build a circuit year on year uh, in Montreal for the F1. And when oh. Formula E came around, the um, you know, I uh, decided to, to to hop on that bandwagon because they get to build and and take take down circuits every year. So, when you design a track, I mean, this is this is the question I've been dying to ask: Is it just a question of okay, it's got to be x x kilometers long, and do you just go like hmm, slow, medium, medium, slow, fast, <laughs> straight, or 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 is it like what goes into how you design a circuit and 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 I know that's a big question, so you can start with just the simple and obvious answers, and then and then I have about a million more questions after that. <laughs> well, it really depends on the circuit. Uh, for sure, they all have their specifications as to what type of length of straight they want, what type of uh, corners are needed into the uh, specifications towards the track and everything. So... When we get to, let's say, a Formula E track, because it's a bit more fresh in my mind, yeah, uh, it's very different because you're working with street circuits. And basically, uh, what will happen is a city or a host promoter will want to designate a city with many different opportunities of circuits. Along with the, uh, the FIA and Formula E, uh, they, they, they have many track designers yeah. uh, that go to these cities and establish what are their criteria not only for the track but for all the infrastructure needed to build it yeah and as well as the impact on society that it has versus the 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 economic uh, uh, turnover such as you know an f1 race in singapore has much more of a, a bigger impact on the economy that you can really uh how right. could i say modify the streets um and then you go into the entire safety process and the track design and you try to, to fit around the budget. It's a very lengthy process, mm. uh, very different to an F1 track where it's more of a statement. And let's say the Austin circuit, for example, yeah. they, they, you know, they had the uh, opportunity to play with the land, play with uh, elevation change, destroy the uh, entire land and rebuild in the more <laughs> sensational statement yeah. for Formula One. Yeah, and I heard that's why they have to keep constantly resurfacing at Cota because they um, the, the land keeps shifting that they built up. Is that right? Yeah, it was uh, pretty terrible last year. I was actually I was with Matt in Austin, and as soon as I stepped in the parking, 
I kind of vomited because I saw the bumps <laughs> leading to turn one. Okay. Yeah. So uh, when you were talking about like, the requirements from the requirements from a city, uh, for somewhere like Baku, for example, not suggesting you were involved in that, w- would it be like the organizer that's come to them and said, right, this has got to go past the castle because this is, you know, one of our big tourist aims. So you've got like a list of requirements like that. Must go past castle, must be the fastest straight in F1, something like that. Well, it, you're you're pretty much right on it. I, did, I do not know how it went down to Baku, but I can imagine yeah. that it was very similar to that. They wanted to, to, to have the old city uh, in the background at one point. They wanted the new part of it. Uh, the, the track that they built in Baku for me is one of the great street circuits uh, because they broke down some rules that they have they didn't want to do uh, in the past few years, such as this, you know, that turn near the yeah. castle where they actually went outside the box. And I think everyone appreciates that for sure. When the race tops, it's another game, but. Okay. Well, look, you're a track designer and you've just triggered me a little bit by talking about Baku being one of the greatest ever street circuits. Let's do a straw (laughs) poll. I don't, I don't want to start with a lie. So let's do a straw poll amongst the four of us. Like I am massively anti street circuit. Matt, where do you lie? I like, I like the ones that can be proper aero generators and have some interest to them. So, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, I will, I will give it to Baku. It can generate an interesting race, okay. but it's not, it's not a driver's, it's not because of a driver's skill thing. It's usually because of a driver error thing. You know what I mean? I, I think so. Yeah. Mr. Carter, where do you stand on street circuits? Be, be the equalizer. Are we limited to F1? Are we talking FE? Are we talking uh, other races? Yeah, it's so different. Okay. Let's start with F1 and then broaden, broaden it out. Well, I'm going to trigger you again, unfortunately, because I'm going to say that um, you have to go there. Oh, in order don't! To appreciate you know how much I hate that argument. Oh. Oh, okay, the fine. Stevens defense. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, 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 when you're there as a spectator, the spectacle of like Monaco and Baku, I'm sure must be amazing. You know, if you can stop yourself from slipping on your diamond shoes. Monaco, Monaco is amazing. It's amazing to see the cars go around that circuit. But I appreciate from. From a visual point of view, looking at it from the outside, it's boring because it's, it's, there's a lack of overtaking. Um, in general, I think the mix, and again, it's a boring answer that you're not going to want, but the mix <laughs> of street surface circuits as opposed to old school, as opposed to new Tilkadromes, does give F1 a lot of different um, aspects to it. If every race was on an old school circuit, I think you'd get a little bit bored. If every race was on a street circuit, et cetera, et cetera. So I do quite like the mix. I love Singapore as a race, um, and, I, and yeah. I do enjoy Monaco. If I may add to that, yeah. you know, street circuit is difficult because uh, you, you, you have to fit within the land. You can't, uh, you know, you can't uh, design whatever thoughts you mm-hmm. have. You have to fit with what's there and what's, uh, what's on the table. So I just wanted to follow up because it was a little unclear to me. When you get a list of requirements, whether you're doing a street circuit or you're doing a specific circuit in a given piece of land, is it the track owner who gives you a list and says, I want a track that does this? Or do you also get a similar list from the FIA and have to make both of those people happy? Uh, you have to make both of those people happy. Uh, mainly the FIA uh, and then the promoter, I would say, or the whole city. And Formula E as well. With, with well, Formula E as well. Formula E have certain criteria with regard to yeah. breaking, breaking well, points to recharge batteries, etc. Uh, yeah, it's basically led from the FIA down uh, in terms of safety standards. Uh, the, the Formula E has his own, its own criteria for what has to be there for the show. Um, uh, but you, it's, 
you have to follow the safety standards and trickle down to the show after. But okay. one of yeah. the things that we've talked about, me and, me and Phil have discussed, is within Formula E, the I don't particularly like the the the, the hairpin bends that they have, the very tight hairpin bends. Yeah, and uh, that is a Formula E um, specification because they have to have, as I said just now, a certain number of big stops in order to generate the the braking power to recharge the battery. So that's uh, that's kind of built into their specifications. Yeah. Uh, well, look, let's go to one of the, the questions that we got from our fine patrons in the Slack group. Uh, we, we asked them about their circuit design questions. So this is quite similar to where Matt was going going down. Uh, Darren says, I would love to know how much consideration goes into other classes racing when designing circuits. Like, do they have a set of, of proxies? Like, this is how a MotoGP race would play out. This is how a Clio Cup would play out. And in F1 we always get told, oh, why can't we have this feature? And it's because of, believe it or not, there's um, there's these two-wheeled cars that people race around uh, and they, they tip them over, but they don't fall down. So it's some kind of weird magic. But it gets frustrating when we go, oh, well, we can't have the feature we want in F1 because of MotoGP. Uh, so just wondering, you know, Darren's question is, do how much do you consider other classes or do they say, no, this track is for, for Indy? So basically it, it depends on who's the uh, safety... Uh, a board um, let's say the FIA has three grades of uh, well more than that but mm. they have three main grades of circuits uh, which apply to different standards of racing and speed basically the big factor in there is speed you know it's uh, how much space do you need to decelerate the car safely for the drivers to to come out and walk out of it uh, you can't have a Formula One go into a circuit where the runoffs aren't long enough or the, yeah. the track width doesn't per- permit a certain specific amount of cars. And so for sure, when you go down to MotoGP, and I've, uh, I've never myself uh, wasn't any, uh, involved in any of these MotoGP uh, races and stuff like that, but you, if somebody's falling and sliding, I bet they don't want an arm code to stop them. Yep. <laughs> so they want a, a ton of runoff and we kind of get stuck with that. So um, as a circuit designer, you must obviously have a, a lot of opinions on uh, the tracks that F1 is currently on. Um, so when we go to the more expansive tracks, we we see this big runoff that's been designed for MotoGP. But then we go to places like Mugello and, you know, and Barcelona, perhaps, where these old traditional circuits, sometimes it feels like Formula One has outgrown them. Do you see it like that or do you see it as, you know, oh, no, if I was designed to design a track, I might design a, a, a Mugello. I have two hats on that. <laughs> uh, my personal one, where I think that danger is sexy in a racetrack and that yeah, anybody okay. should be penalized if they step out of bounds and that, you know, uh, only the very brave should be uh, compensated with a win. But... The other hat is the my work hat where you have to, to design something that's safe for the drivers. And, and sadly enough, the safest and most predictable is the runoff and asphalt where the driver can understand or predict what's going to happen with the car. First of all, you know, grass can get very slippery, slippery in the wet. Um, yeah. Gravel, as we saw with Alonso in Australia not too long ago, can have its uh, ups and downs and Maybe turn that, flip that car around, uh, and it, it gets some. It, there's some serious risk, and I think uh, sadly last year we saw somebody suffer from that risk, even though it was an asphalt. So, 
I'm here to, uh, I was hoping you would be here to settle once and for all the proper runoff area. Yeah material argument and it sounds like you're you're kind of both sizing it a little bit which i understand from your personal preference versus like work and safety so i have a nine-part question for you which <laughs> i'm go. famous for he's a pen um the first one is when it comes to safety are you looking at safety from the drivers uh, from the driver on the surface point of view or are you looking at it from a, i can model this successfully point of view when it comes to runoff area and the second part of that question is we often discuss having a small strip, mm, a punishment yes. strip of some non-asphalt area before the runoff. What are the downsides to that? And is that something that could be could be employed to sort of, I don't want to say spice things up, but add a little bit of that sexy danger back in? Well, the, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. Which don't one? Sorry. <laughs> Which one? Sorry uh, about that. The, the having I'll start with your second question and then we'll ramp up to the, the, the first one. Having a unpredictable or, or let's say a slippery surface right beside the track. Um, right now, most of the time they're using artificial grass. The wheel of an F1 when it's really hot and it tears that artificial grass around, it can, you know, it, it, it creates some hazard that First of all, the cars don't like if you, you know, one of the vents eats uh, this piece of of, uh, fake grass, artificial grass. And after that, it's very difficult to repair. So in between sessions, uh, you can't go back and glue a new piece of grass. It won't have time to dry. So there's a certain amount of operations mindset that you have to keep behind that. That makes it very difficult to have the right material. So they went to the sausage curb. uh, But... At a certain, you know, at a, a point where it penalizes the car, the sausage curves, the curbs do uh, damage to the car. Uh, so the, going back to the runoff, the, the grass was too, uh, how could I say, it's too slippery. Uh, same problem with, uh, you know, some damage to the grass. It can create some more damage to, to the, the next car coming around. And you go to the gravel, it has its up and downs. The asphalt, or let's say the one in uh, France where you've, you've got that grip uh, painting, uh, really tears the tires. Uh, it can yeah. be a race killer. I think it's a good maybe in between. And then we go back to what happened this weekend with the, uh, the, the, the detour. Oh, the detour at the Russian Grand Prix uh, on yes. the runoff. Yeah, that's yes, a very yes, odd... Yes, yes, yes. Bit of runoff. I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't yeah. explain that. I had it in my head. Uh, <laughs> it, it's easy to manipulate that that you know where the cars have to, to drive, and so you can you can time you can you can give a specific penalty in time to a car without damaging it. Yeah, I, is it sexy? Hell no. <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, uh, if we go yeah. to if we go to Matthew for a second, obviously you've worked with with drivers and and. I'm sure you've chatted with them about their attitudes towards, you know, runoff and asphalt. Do they crave, you know, the danger? Do, are they like, oh, it was too safe out there today. I wish <laughs> I wish there was a chance that I didn't come home. Like, surely the drivers are happy with increasing safety on the whole, apart from the odd nutter. I, to be honest, I think that question answers itself when, as we've discussed many times, you look at the two drivers that I had. <laughs> One of them was more than happy with um, a little bit of danger and being rewarded for for pushing the boundaries. And the other one hit the boundaries. 
So um, it's kind of, yeah, it depends. It depends. I think, I think the drivers enjoy a challenge um, for sure. And that's why, and again, it's going to trigger you spanners, but every drive, well, most drivers will say that Monaco is one of their favorite tracks because the challenge of threading that car around those streets and the, the risk versus reward is insane. And Monaco, when you're actually at Monaco going through the sessions with the drivers, they always start slow, whoever they are, Lewis mm-hmm. Hamilton, yeah. you know, Max Verstappen, whoever it is, they will start on the Friday, uh, Thursday, it's in Monaco, gradually build up their speed. And you see the teams and the team managers are telling them, don't go for it on lap one, build into the weekend. And that's because it's such a challenge. And all the drivers say that they appreciate that challenge. So I think the drivers would prefer um, to be rewarded with their risk because, again, Drivers are very arrogant and they think that they're the best in the world. So they're all going to sit there and say, you know, you challenge me and I'll come out on top. Well, Pastor Maldonado said he would have been the best ever driver if it wasn't for people stopping him. And I'm assuming you're one of the people that he was talking about. I think he was. I think he, he was and probably still is the best driver ever. Why do you do this to me? Why do you do this to my show? I invite you into my shed. This is a nice place. There's no need to bring that filth uh, in here. Trumpets. <laughs> Well, I just, I mean, I wanted to follow up. If I think about it from a driver point of view, it's, if I have a non-asphalt surface, that means no one can gain some kind of unfair advantage by skirting boundaries or finding loopholes with it. If you are off, you are losing time. And Yeah, but in my perspective, that's called track uh, limits. Track limits. Yeah. And... The same driver that will say, hey, the, this guy uh, pulled a move uh, on the last lap in that corner and gained some speed. He's going to go around the track limit and maybe go a bit outside and, and do the same. And very, very specific, uh, how could I say, very weird individuals where they, you know, <laughs> look at somebody doing else uh, like the same thing and think, hey, I am. I'm going to do it better than you. I'm going to cut that corner more. But it's, it's such an interesting debate because there's so many different angles to it. If you think back over the years, and if I look back to um, the podium that we had at Lotus in Spa in 2015, the reason we got the podium, as everyone knows, is because, well, it's because Roman drove very well and I'm an amazing team boss. Aside from that, it was because Vettel, Vettel's tyre blew with mm. two laps to go or whatever it was. And the reason when they sort of investigated and they went back and looked over that was because Vettel was constantly cutting the corner at the top of a rouge. So he was going off offline there and the curb eventually damaged the, the mm. rear wheel. I think it's the top of a rouge or the top of Radion. Whereas as you, you go down and as, as you come to the top of the rise, sure. he was cutting that left-hand corner. Um, and they pretty much, when they looked into it, decided that it was because he was cutting that. So... You know, risk and reward can can hold many different ways of ways of biting you. So that was, you know, he was constantly cutting that corner, um, and eventually his tire went. And then you look back to is it the the final corner in Austin where a few years ago they were going so wide they were going four, five, six car lengths off the circuit on that right hand bend yeah. to cut back in um, without penalisation. So you know, it comes down to track design and risk versus reward and you know it's it, it's an interesting debate oh the the indie didn't look particularly great did it uh on that on that uh on that same season they were like skipping the final corner almost going all exactly. the way yeah. uh, around and that the should never happen no this is uh well you design indie tracks this is your fault this is your your fault phil yeah yeah well actually if uh, you take the look at uh, that 2011 indie track in Edmonton. That first corner was 
that, that was something. So you had a, a kilometer long straight leading to a 295 degree left where you could go three wide, but right next to the corner was a nice big gray wall. It's very, very interesting. Interesting. So very easy to signs it is what you're saying. Pardon? So very easy to signs it. To like Carlos Sainz did, did going through the... Yes, 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 yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I, I get the risk reward argument and I, I'm not trying to poo poo it, but I always sort of look at racing. I always think there's a few different kind of racing fans. There's one, the ones that are petrol heads and are just there to see things go fast. There's the, the adrenaline junkies who need it to be sexy and dangerous. And then there's people like me who, who really are interested in the sport of it. And, and for me, like if you've got too much risk, you so, you're sort of discouraging racing a lot of the time. You know, people will make moves uh, in Hungary because there's runoff and they won't necessarily make that same move in Monaco because you're going to hit a wall. So you end up just just following through each other. So from a sporting point of view, I, I think there's a case for at least some tracks to be nice and wide and open, but then do have something punitive when you go off track. And I, I've always wondered why the electronic element is not looked at more. Uh, and this is either going to anger Phil, I, I, I don't know. But, you know, they did electronic detection for track limits for qualifying. Why can't we simply have those in races more? And, you know, it cuts your engine power while you're off track. You know, something like that. Are there ever these electronic options being explored? I have, uh, I have to admit, I have, again, two hats. Um, anything that's electronic in my first, wearing my first hat uh, makes me sick. Wow. Um, Strong reaction. Okay. But then I went to uh, Saudi Arabia uh, two years ago already to, uh, to see the first uh, attack mode in Formula E, right, which yes. I highly doubted, mm. but it kind of mm. impressed me. That's where my second hat comes in. And for sure, that can be a solution. Um, but when you were talking a bit earlier about making sure that uh, you, you you know, you, you, you do not only have one type of circuit versus a very wide circuit and that has maybe more of a sporting side to it. I think maybe a bit more of diversity in terms of circuit can do the, the you know, do justice to the different types of drivers and different types of cars as well. Yeah. OK, look, guys, you know, I don't like nuance. If you're going to keep providing balanced arguments and all oh, the answers always somewhere in the middle, you know, we're never we're never going to grow. As a production, we need to rant and rave. We need to be outraged. Yeah, everyone well, is awful, Matt. Everyone is terrible and everyone is boring and they suck. Well, that, that's why we balance out. <laughs> which one's which? <laughs> he's which, Canadian as well. Who's the negative so he's, one? He's gonna... Sorry? Who's the negative one out of you two then in the partnership? Is it Mr. Carter? It's got to be. Or is it? Oh, dear. No. Right. no, 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 no. No, it's him. Yeah. <laughs> That'll never Pessimistic. work. Pessimistic. I'm optimistic. Work. Sorry, Matt, you were trying to get in. Beg your pardon. Uh, yeah, I did. We're sort of talking about these off-track services, but I've, I've also kind of had this question. When we've seen new tracks come onto the circuit, we see, oh, this is a super low degradation surface. Yeah. Oh, this is this one really chews up the tires. Is that an active choice that a designer makes? Or is that just like the way the thing comes out from the contractor you hire to pour the, to pour the surface? Like, how, is it an active choice by a designer? Or is it just sort of like it shows up and it is what it is? The surface is the actual track that cars run on. So you, you mean the, the, the actual asphalt? Yeah, yeah like yeah. like when Sochi came on, it, everyone was like, the tires don't grade at all. It's magic. But we saw other new circuits come on where the tires had massive degradation. So clearly there's a difference there that's causing that. 
Is that an act of choice or is that just a product of who manufactured it for the track? That's a good question, actually. So mainly, you know, there's some chemical balance you have to have in your asphalt when you, you lay it down. And there's some specifications as to how the track interacts throughout the race and to make mm-hmm. sure the, the same de- degradation or, you know, uh, traction is, is the same throughout the circuit. Uh, I did not have the opportunity to ask that question or, or, or live that. Okay. Basically, uh, yeah, we give specifications on to what type of asphalt we want. Uh, maybe in different parts of the world, they have different yep. rocks in the, the aggregate. And so, so I'm starting to sense then that the answer is it kind of comes out how it comes out in, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you just and make a race standards to, to, yeah, to, to, sure. to stay within, but then you have the, you know, what's the ambient temperature, what's happening, what's it, it, the rocks are not from the same pit in the yeah. sense that are in the, the mix of the asphalt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. I know what Matt's trying to do. He's trying to steer it round to tires, aren't you? That's what you're trying to do. This is a track conversation. Jeez, man. I love it when you're wrong, and you've never been more wrong. I was just going to say. So it's kind of like my daughter's preschool teachers used to say: "You get what you get, and you don't get upset." <laughs> okay. Uh, look, before we before we let you go, Phil, and we are very grateful for your time. Uh, we have to address the 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 elephant in the room of the Tilkadromes that have probably caused the most controversy in track design uh, for the scale of like comments and attention that it's got. So obviously I'm not going to ask you to sit here and slate your slate your colleague, uh, Herman Tilker, but can you understand why there's sometimes a little bit of frustration about the Tilkadromes um, and maybe kind of justify, you know, why, why do they, they seem to turn out like that and have these same characteristics that people keep complaining about? Oh, that's a multifaceted question. Uh, Answer all Tilco the facets. Really, it, it brought F1 into modern TV. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the track that he builds are fantastic. Like from a visual point, they're they're they are yeah, very very you know beautiful to to from the buildings to the track itself from how it's laid on. So that's one thing. Um, he he has some very specific. Uh, criteria that come back to every track uh, and that's easy to spot I think uh, for anybody for example um, he has his own style for sure um, what's a good example he, of a very tilkery kind of sequence well let's say uh, Sepang China uh, versus well it's basically it's a long straight that leads to uh, a, a, a right hand let's say to a left hand yeah. where you, you gain the opportunity to have heavy braking and two different lines to go to the second corner. And then you have in there a few S's, a sharp left or a sharp right. And then you have another straight that breaks, uh, that leads to a, a high braking zone. And there you go. It's a, it's a tilka circuit. It's you know, a tilka circuit. It's, but what I have to say, he did bring this modern uh, step uh, of F1 into a new direction where, you know, it's, it's, you can't deny that he really helped out. Um, he has his own signature. As I, you know, if you take a painting and it's always the same artist, it's one, it's not an art gallery. Uh, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I think that diversity in terms of track design could benefit the sport because it would bring a totally new different aspect. But 
the Tilka, current Tilka track design, I think are going to be very different in terms of perspective when you get to ground effect cars. Because right now, the only places you can actually make a very decent pass or, or, or more propice or more, the, the risk is very less to make yeah. a pass is these high braking zones. Uh, because you can't follow a car from close enough uh, and still gain the same uh, grip. So if you go to ground effect cars, well, you're reducing that risk. And, and that's going to be very interesting. These big, wide, you know, S's here and there that he is uh, able to do. I think Vietnam is going to be very interesting. Well, hopefully we'll get to find out if the world ever shakes down and sorts itself out. You're not to blame for that, and neither is Tilka. So uh, we'll leave you on a one personal question from Trevor in our Slack group, and he says, personal question for you, uh, what track does he wish he would have designed, and what track does he think is complete rubbish? And he asks that we exclude Yasmarina from that just to save time. Not a fan, I'm guessing. So what, no. go, which one do you look at and you go, oh, I wish I'd designed that? I would say the U.S., uh, besides the fact that the earth is uh, falling, falling down underneath, the U.S. <laughs> is, it, it's a really good one. Uh, that first corner is amazing. It creates mm. many different uh, alternatives and exits, and it, it's really cool. Um, the worst one, well, you, you kind of took my choice away, uh, I must admit. Yeah. I, I can't. I, I don't know if I can say. I can tell you which one I like, but I don't know if I can tell you which one. <laughs> oh, I hate. that's a good point. No, no, no. That makes it too personal, doesn't it? And by the way, Matt, when he said the Earth is falling down underneath the track, he meant the structure of the track, not your society. So just that's that's a few months away. Sorry, Matt. Too yeah, this, this is not for this podcast, Matt. We can have a separate <laughs> yeah, argument. Come on, Matt. Come on, get it together, buddy. Uh, Phil Smirnoff, uh, thank you so much for your time. And it's Smirnoff with a W, uh, not a double F. Is there anywhere people can go and, you know, find the stuff that you do? Do you have a, a website with a gallery of track layouts? I'm very personal. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a world where you get uh, referred to a project and not, very rare that you marketing is not a very good tool in this world but uh i'm very personal but my instagram has a few pics fantastic thank you so much for your time and i do hope you'll come and chat to us about tracks another time absolutely there's a lot to say (laughs) certainly is This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow, fascinating conversation there with Phil Smirnoff, who designs uh, a bunch of tracks. And I think we're going to get him back on now that we know his spectrum of um, now we know his spectrum of uh, knowledge. I know exactly what I'd want to ask the next time. Well, we have to get him back on because there's a million unanswered questions in our show notes alone. And never mind what the Slack patrons came up with. I personally, I was dying to know if the need to recharge errors played any part in the way Tilka designed his tracks. Wow. But we'll have to wait till next time. I'm glad we didn't have time to get to that question. That's a terrible question. You're bad at this. One good tech time. You produce one good tech time and you're like, look, look who do you think you are? A terrible question. Right. Well, I'm glad we are moving on in a sense because we have uh, now solo in his office, Mr. Matthew Carter. Matthew, thank you for, for a- allowing us some access to your business partner there. I feel like... Um, I feel we've got to look under a peek under the sheets of the workings of motorsport there. Yeah, to, to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's some things that, uh, that he and I are working on, which will become apparent soon, but uh, yeah, no, there's uh, to be perfectly honest, working with him has, has, has taught me quite a lot as well. So um, some of the things that some of the, cause obviously he's got, he's got books, reg- rules and regulations that are, yeah. that are inches thick feet thick um with with what you can and you can't do with uh with circuits and circuit design and runoffs and uh and yeah and i mean a lot of the questions were answered in 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 the, in the questions that you asked him but you know uh moto gp versus formula one mm. versus formula e versus Indy. you know all the different regulations it's uh, it's fascinating and I, and I tell you what, uh, we now know that we've got an active resource, Matt, that whenever we've got a question about tracks, we're going to be bothering. Uh, Matthew, please ask Phil, please ask Phil whether you're allowed to park in that area. Oh, no, I guess that's out of his remit. Where you can park for practice starts, not in Phil's remit. Uh, we might get onto that a little bit later. Uh, and before we talk about crazy music videos uh, from Lotus that I've just discovered happened under your watch, Mr. Carter... You're either yeah. a genius or evil. I don't know. Can't quite work it out from that video. But we must get to the big story of the day, which... Uh, oh, hang on, two secs. Big Dirty News. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not news unless we play that. Okay. Now it's news. We woke up to the bombshell at nine o'clock, and I think this is massive, massive news, that Honda has said that they are leaving Formula One in 2021. This leaves Red Bull, obviously, without an engine partner beyond that. They have burned bridges at Renault, which seems to be the obvious the obvious uh, engine manufacturer that they would then go to. I, I think that, without exaggerating, this is both a disaster for Red Bull, a real, real blow, considering the, the progress they were making and the investment and the time that has gone into this Red Bull-Honda uh, saga, and journey 
but it's also a disaster for Formula One as well. So I, I will try and pull some positivity out of this story. But from an F1 fan point of view, I was I was genuinely shocked, Mr. Carter, when I saw that news and I just went like, this is unbelievable. And it's it's a blow. It's a blow for fans. It's a blow for the sport, for Red Bull and, of course, for Honda as well. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, you, you've um, I usually get a few days or a few weeks to uh, think to, about to it, to build up to these sorts of uh, these sorts of things. But, yeah, no, obviously it's happened this morning, even 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 sooner for me, because uh, we're five hours behind you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, the, the little bit of um, sort of research and reaching out that I've done since uh, since 6 a.m. this morning when I woke up, um, I I think, uh, well, I, I, I know that Red Bull and Honda have obviously known about this for a while. Um, so whilst it's a shock to everyone, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily an immediate shock. It probably was a shock a few months ago to Red Bull, but maybe not now. Um, and... Uh, I would assume that they already have uh, things lined up to help them. Wait a minute. Hang on. No, Matt, Matt, he's doing that thing. Come on. Okay. okay, okay. No, 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 no. Let's play a game. Let's play a game. If you had to guess about what their next move would be, what would you guess? Uh, If I had to guess, I would say it's interesting the timing of Andy Cowell leaving Mercedes. (laughs) Okay. And, And what could that imply? Elmore. Um, I don't know. It just, I think it's interesting that from, from what I've heard already, they've known for a while, um, maybe, maybe as, as long as a few months. And the um, sort of uh, proclaimed genius in the hybrid engineer, Andy Cowell, yeah. has, uh, has left Mercedes um, saying that he's looking for a new challenge and has not um, yet said where he's going. Um, could be a complete coincidence. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, it. Back to your original point. It is. Yeah. It is obviously a huge shock. You know, it's uh, Honda were were behind on the on the development curve, um, but seem to be catching up. Um, but they've obviously taken the decision that when the new engine regs come in in twenty twenty two, they don't want to invest another chunk of cash into a uh, an engine that isn't relevant to road cars. Well, I, I think the problem is the new engine regs are coming in in twenty twenty six. It's just the chassis the the sporting regs that are changing in 22 and from the sound of Honda, that's not soon enough for where they see the uh, business going. Um, sorry, Matt, could you just, just expand on that a little bit for, for the, for the ignorant when you say what, the, what were the regs going to be? And if the regs were changing to 2022, if they were changing in 2022 instead, what would be different that would be quick enough for Honda to make them go, Oh, okay, we can stay now. Well, uh, Honda has stated that the remit behind their decision isn't their lack of satisfaction with Formula One itself. Mm. That the problem is they see things going fully electric and that they Uh. immediately need to repurpose their business that direction. Now, the new sets of engine regulations that are being looked at for 26 were like a serious halfway step. Like we're 50% thermal efficiency now. The things they're looking at with the uh, e-benzene, the synthetic gasoline, with the two cylinders, with the plasma, with this, that, with all of their things, they're looking to push north of 60% efficiency with the engine Mm. in the next iteration. Um, But I think as a car manufacturer trying to meet fleet mileage, you're you're stuck with what's going to get me there quickest. And by 2026, those rules have changed a lot, and you're going to be behind the curve when you need to be generating that technology right now. 
right now is is not is right right now is fifteen years off of at least off of electric power being able to like match current Formula One lap times over the course of a two hour race. So like, I mean, Matthew, you know more about the car industry than 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 either of us. But are we going to keep beating Formula One over the head for trying to keep up with consumers? Because we're not looking at you know getting your Prius uh, four hundred miles to Scotland at sixty miles an hour. This is about all out raw performance and electric engines aren't, aren't going to get us there for years and years. Yet, yet Formula One is kind of stuck in this halfway house now, isn't it? It's, it's, it's behind industry, but it's where it needs to be with motorsport. In, in fact, it's ahead of where it should be with motorsport. You could still stick, you know, a dirty, great big petrol engine in there and, and get those lap times. Well, I, OK, I, I don't necessarily agree with everything that you just said. I, th- I think the rate of... Um the rate of improvement and the rate of technology advance within the electric engines is, is incredible. Um, and, and to be honest, um, you know, I think electric engines are going to catch up to, to, to hybrid engines much sooner than you think. Um, I was reading an interesting article about the new put the Porsche Taycan, the, um, the fully electric Porsche. Yeah. Uh, It was actually Mark Weber. I think he was, he was talking about it. And he was saying that the car that they released that they launched last year is actually two years out of date. Um, so they launched that car and it's already, you know, as, as quick supposedly as the Tesla, you know, with longer battery range and it can do infinite launches that a Tesla can't do because the batteries are that much more robust. And he was saying that this technology is already, they're already two years ahead of that technology. So I think the curve of where electric is going, where electric cars are going, shouldn't be underestimated. Okay. Um, but I think it's, it's relevance to road cars and it's, with Honda, it's maybe the ability to jump out before they get fully submerged, if that makes sense. So Ferrari, Mercedes and Renault are already in deep waters, whereas maybe, I'm not sure where this analogy is going, maybe Honda are just sort of uh, entering into the shallow end. Um, so it's easier for them to turn around and, right. and, and to I'm jump with you. out. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I think there's some of that to, to do with it. Um, and, and you can't underestimate the amount of money it costs to develop these F1 mm. engines and... Uh, you know, and again, without being too controversial, Honda, I've got a bit of a reputation or a bit of a history for, for ditching F1. Okay, so to, before anyone sends an email, I'm, I'm aware that obviously an electric car can go out and do one lap and, and do a very quick yeah. lap at the Nordschleife or something like that. So I'm, I am aware of that. However, I, I'm going to, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to say within 15 years, you don't get a electric powered single seater car finishing a Grand Prix distance challenging this current hybrid era. So I'm, I'm going to stick with those guns. I appreciate what people are saying with the advancements being quicker than you think. Uh, Matt. Uh, so I think you're really putting your finger on it without meaning to, which I love, <laughs> yeah, is that it's the length of it. They can yeah. make an electric single seater that can match Formula One car performance for a very short period of time. But as we all know with batteries, your issue is energy density and energy specificity. You can't yeah. get the same amount of electric power into a size and weight that you can with petrol. And so this is why we have not seen Formula One make that same go to hybrid rather than full electric. And actually, the FIA, I think, has a genius plan. They've got Formula E for full electric. You've got WEC that's going to be doing hydrogen, which I know Japan is very big behind. And you've got Formula One doing the internal combustion technology and the hybrid model that also is going to have to play an incredibly important role if we're going to hit the greenhouse gas reduction targets 
that will keep our world livable. And sorry if that's a problem for you, but that's just the way it is. No, 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 no. I'm not an anti-environmentalist at all. I'm not an anti-environmentalist at all. I want to be like clear. Like I, I want my kids and my grandkids to have a lovely planet to live on. I don't necessarily think that that putting it in motorsport, you know, really has much of an effect on that apart from a bit of advertising oh look we're using hybrid engines you know the actual footprint of formula one is much more around the logistics of the of the events more than more than the time on track no i think you misunderstood me Mm. the technology that they're going to develop to have a 60 percent thermally efficient internal combustion engine screwed into a hybrid car will raise the mileage that's what i'm talking about i don't want to get too bogged down in this but i've don't believe that motorsport actually is the leader for battery technology. So I think battery technology chugs along where it's going to chug along and motorsport reaps the benefits of it. But I'm sure we could go back and forth arguing about that all day. I think from a sporting point of view, we should really focus on where that leaves Formula One. And uh, Mr. Carter, we, are, we now have three engine manufacturers and we've kind of proven by you saying Honda don't want to get you know, dug in too deep they're kind of getting out well they can and they're not too swallowed by it. Doesn't that just show that the hybrid model of engine wars that we've had since 2014 is, is now kind of, it's, it's untenable and no one's going to step in and take Honda's place. It, it's a bit of a sham and, and Mercedes are just too far ahead to make it any, any, of any sporting value. Uh, no, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, there's no reason that three engine manufacturers within a grid of 20 cars can't be... Um, interesting and fun to watch um you know the the disparity with the i mean towards the end of the v8 era all the engines were and you know there's facts that back this up you know that all the engines were were pretty similar um towards the end of 2013 and the racing was 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 really good now if they had all had the same engine would the would the racing have Mm. still been good yeah it probably would so you know if the three engines are coming closer and closer together and there is only three engines then so be it I think the bigger issue here is um, is is how many bridges Christian has burned um, and whether or not he's yeah. able to get his hands on one of the engines. Because, you know, with the best one in the world, and, and again, maybe this, this comes back to why Honda made the decision. If Renault, um, Ferrari and Mercedes engines are getting closer and closer and closer in performance, then where, where is the standout for Honda? Where do they, where do they make a difference? You know they've they've aligned themselves with with Red Bull, which is um, a great car with, mm. with with a great with two great drivers. Um, so therefore, you know where where where's their where's their USP? Where do they where do they achieve something for the amount of money they're putting into it? So I can kind of see where Honda are going. My point, which is a little bit rambly, is I think that with three engine manufacturers, F1 can still be a very interesting and a and a great sport that that's that's fun to watch. Um, the bigger question, as I said, is, is, is where Red Bull go. Can I ask an even bigger question? Do you think that Honda's decision to leave Formula One is a negative signal for the entire sport of Formula One? I mean, is it maybe in a little bit of trouble here when one of their four engine manufacturers just says, eh, you know, I, I think I've had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. It's not the future. I mean, are we headed towards the, we're just basically Goodwood, Goodwood but around the world? Or, or do you think it's still fundamentally no, no. in a healthy place? Yes. No, I, I, I honestly 100% still think it's in a healthy place. I think that, um, as, I, as, I, as I tried to explain there, maybe poorly, I think three engines within 20 cars um, on, on an F1 circuit of 22, 23 races around the world with the best drivers 
uh, on the best circuits with the best downforce is is still going to be an incredible sport to watch. Uh, the fact that Honda pulled out in the middle of a global pandemic uh, with the world, you know, the, yeah. the, the the eyes of the world upon the environment and on uh, road going cars to to go fully electric at a time when Honda maybe are at a crossroads of do we plow another X hundreds of millions into this or do we call it quits? Which I think was kind of where they were in 2008 and they made a similar decision. It was, it was, you know, they were teetering on a, do we continue with a huge investment or do we jump ship? Um, and they decided to jump ship. So um, in terms of F1, no, I don't think it is. In terms of looking forward, maybe five, 10, 15 years, then who knows, you know, Formula One can't go fully electric because Alejandro Agag has got the rights to it that were given to him five, six years ago um, when nobody thought that electric racing was going to go anywhere. So unless Formula One decide to give Alejandro a huge paycheck, they're never going to go fully electric. So um, they're kind of, they're in this hybrid world and they're going to have to stay there. Sorry, when you talked about Honda, it suddenly struck me that the analogy was a couple that gets engaged for a long period of time. And then right before the marriage, they just decide not to make that final investment. And that sort of seemed to describe Honda very well to me. Well, I'm, I'm wondering as well, I think that this should have been the year for Honda Red Bull to really be challenging the Mercedes. And forgive me. Still this, could be. This is, uh, huh? Still could be. Yeah, if Hamilton. You said this could be the year for them to challenge. Oh, it should be. be. Well, I thought, they're, I thought, they're still in there. They're still in the hunt, but I performance-wise, I think this should have been the year where they were like up there on pure performance with Red Bull with the Honda in the background. And I said, this is unsourced, and I can't remember where I heard it, but I heard that the the agreement with That's Ferrari... Right. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, the Yeah, but when you say it, it's because you don't want to reveal the source and you're pretending you're guessing. When I say it, I'm genuinely pulling it out of nowhere. So I, I heard that the, the Red Bull Honda engine was affected by the same uh, regulations that has held back the Ferrari engine as well. So that's something that has curtailed their performance this year and might have also been a factor in going, well, we were supposed to be comp- uh, competitive and we're not now and we don't know where to go. So I don't know if that's rumour, that's speculation. But um, yeah, so I, I guess the question now is then, what of Red Bull and how important are the personalities in this? Because you've had dealings with uh, uh, Cyril Abitable. I don't think him and Christian Horner get on well. How, how much does that matter? when we're talking about partnerships, you know, are, are the board of directors going, oh, well, Cyril and Christian don't get on. So we just, be- we best leave that, but it's going to make loads of money. No, they're not mates. Leave it out. Well, the, ultimately money talks. And um, the fact that those two maybe don't get on with each other is, is largely irrelevant. At this precise moment in time, Renault are supplying themselves and one other team. Mm. Uh, as of next year, they were down to just supplying themselves again. Um, and that does curtail development. It curtails, well, it makes the engine side, very side of the Renault racing operation um, harder to sustain um, and harder to bring new updates, et cetera, et cetera. Because when Mercedes are supplying three other teams, they've got three other lots of, again, go back to 2015, circa 25 million euros per team coming into the pot to help them with development and to help them to, to push forward. Renault haven't got that. So, you know, they had, they had no one else last year. They've supplied Renault, uh, McLaren this year. Mm. And then next year, they're, they're back down to no one again. So money talks. And uh, at some point, uh, if that's where Red Bull want to go, then I, I would assume that Renault would supply them an engine. So if you're Christian Horner right now, uh, which I would admit would be a downgrade in terms of looks, but if you're Christian Horner right now, 
Yeah, but Sorry, he's got, just, he's got a spice that now. in there to, to confuse you. If you're Christian Horner right now, who do you go to? What's your plan? I think that, uh, as I said at the start, I, I, I think they've known about this for, for a short while. Um, I think they're going to obviously assess all their different options. They, um, as far as I'm aware, and you may know better than me, Matt, back in 2015, there was a rule that said that you could only supply uh, an engine could only could only run four cars on the grid. Yeah. Well, that's gonna. Teams. Well, it doesn't have to change, but um, that that may well be allowed to change. So, if that's the yeah. case, that sorry. No, please. They're more interested in you than me. Then um, you know, all three engines are up for grabs. If that's not the case, if if they stick to that, then obviously Mercedes uh, are off the table. Um, I think potentially. Liberty stroke the FIA could say to the engine suppliers, you know, you have to give, you know, there has to be fair competition. You have to supply an engine to anyone that wants one on the grid. Um, that could happen. Um, but as I sort of alluded to at the start, I'm more than interested to see whether or not Red Bull attempt something in-house. Yeah. Um, Honda has spent a lot of money on a lot of people and a lot of uh, in the crudest of terms, machines and technology to develop, to get to where they've got to. They're obviously making progress. Um, We know that they're making progress hand in hand with Red Bull, who are being allowed to help Honda more than Renault ever allowed Red Bull to help, which is one of the factors that affected that relationship because Red Bull said, you know, we're going to employ people. Um, They did employ some people from from Ilmore. Um, You know, we're going to employ people to help you Renault to fix your problems and Renault said no we don't need help in probably classic French style they said they didn't need help that they could do it themselves and that was one of the the contentious points between that relationship so if Red Bull are helping Honda um, and they've got people on the ground then there is a natural step that they could I mean they'd need some sort of genius to run the program for them I'm not sure if there's anyone currently looking for a job that would maybe be able to run an engine program. Um, but that would, um, that okay, would okay. potentially be a route and it would be a route that you know, Christian said regularly. It was one of Ron Dennis's um, uh, sort of uh, strap lines was that you can't win. You can't become a, a world championship team with an engine. That's not uh, unique to your car. I can accept that. Can you just explain uh, you keep saying Ilmore. Could you just explain that to the uninformed? What is Ilmore? Matt can probably explain it better than me. Ilmore makes engines and they have an association with Formula One. And uh, they employed, I, I can't remember, they employed them to come in and look at the cylinders design for Renault. And there was a rumor that there was a secret facility in Red Bull, or there was yeah. a rumor about, about this association mm. that got, blown into the mainstream press to the point where it was denied by all parties. And I don't know what's happened since then, but I believe that that they have quietly come back onto the scene and sort of been in the background as part of this partnership with Honda. But yeah. they have the ability to manufacture engines. They said they wouldn't get involved in F1 because the hybrid side was too complex and they couldn't make money at it. But that's a problem that Dietrich Mateschitz can solve very, very easily should he choose to. And I think, and I think that statement was made a few years ago about the hybrid. And about the hybrid, that was when they were helping out with Renault. So, so exactly what Matt said. So, but Red Bull have taken, they've either taken on board some people from Ilmore or they've bought into Ilmore. It's it's a little bit sketchy as to exactly how they've done it. But um, but Red Bull certainly have invested right back to 2014. They were investing 
money, dollars, mm. hard dollars into engine development, which is something that they had no need or right to do, but they were doing it then. Uh, the chat room is telling us that Ilmor was the Mercedes manufacturer back in the Audis. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, yeah, so the, the point is that Red Bull have um, an affiliation. I'm not sure how much it is. Yeah. With a company which is which is which can help assist or potentially even standalone build engines, is it is it mad to think that the Red Bull could just say right Honda uh, Honda Power manufacturing area we just want to move everything in that factory to a facility in Milton Keynes and that's just going to be our engine manufacturing we might even employ a few of your guys who now no longer have a job in building Formula One hybrid engines and just kind of just transfer that and just rebadge it. Is that too simplistic? No, not at all. Okay. Well, that's basically what I'm suggesting. Right, but with... That's, what I'm yeah, su- yeah, that's yeah. kind of three hours into this story since I woke up this morning, okay. but that is kind of the yeah. the the implication that I'm I'm getting at this side. Yeah, Mario Illion was the name that I was looking that's for. It. That's who was involved. Yeah. And so so, that, so yeah. There's, there's a past there. There's, there's a history, there's a past there. You know, Red Bull have attempted to solve uh, engine issues um and and they've and they've certainly got the people there honda have obviously got a lot of people that they've employed in the in the f1 program um mm. so that, i mean it, it's i'm not saying it's it's a done deal i'm not saying that it's definitely going to happen but it's possible it's not it's not a case that red bull have to take one of the three engines or they're going to be um fred flintstoning it around the circuit <laughs> so i would i would have a prediction though that Red Bull will not go back to Renault. I just cannot see that option coming up. And if there's any kind of rules about, oh, but you can't go for a Mercedes because then they, they're exceeding the amount of engines we're supplying. Or, oh, you can't threaten to leave us because you just signed the Concorde agreement. I think people might be underestimating the power that Red Bull have in the sport and how much yeah. they can hold the FIA, their feet to the coals by saying, look, we've got four of your cars on the grid. I think Red Bull can make demands and those rules will suddenly become very flexible. Yeah, I agree. That's kind of what I was saying before. Yeah. I, th- oh, I think that the rules will have to change in terms of number of engines or even, you know, an edict that says if someone requests an engine from them, you have to supply it to them. Good. Have we have we beat this this horse to death? It's a very exciting news story. And uh, it's one of those things where we'll all get very excited about it now and then we won't hear anything for a few weeks now. I'm personally looking for you tweeting that rumor about Red Bull building its own engine on the Carter show into the F1 and the F1 timeline as soon as we are done recording. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, the, the mutterings about a Red Bull engine project have been flying around since the beginning of the hybrid era, haven't they? And yep. um, it, it would kind of make sense to have this complete Red Bull, Red Bull package. And I would, I would be really sad if we lost the Red Bull clan out of, out of Formula One because that... That they have been part of the fabric of Formula One for like a, a generation now, so I, I still think you know it would be a massive loss if they were to leave. Yeah, I don't think they will. I don't think they will. I, I, honestly, I, I can't see that happening. With everything that's been sort of agreed and resolved, and Concord agreements and cost caps yeah. and uh, barriers to entry for new teams, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I, I don't think I don't think they're going anywhere. Right, well, I'm conscious of that you are in office hours, uh, Mr. Carter, and whilst normally when we're speaking to you, you're like, no, no, keep it going on forever so I don't have to go back to my family because there's full of little ones that cry and, and poop in little sacks around their waist. But and since you're in the office and need to be productive, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand over to Matt for one last short topic before we, before we uh, let you go. 
and uh, okay. let Matt be the one to pick so you don't get upset at me. Oh, there are so many to pick from. But, you know, I think the one that would be most relevant, and we will probably talk about on Sunday, so it might be nice to get, nice to get a little background, would be the whole stewarding Fufu Ra and Sochi. Because we saw Lewis get uh, penalty points, a double penalty for starting outside the designated area uh, doing a practice start. Yep. And then we discover that back in Spa, Leclerc got out of a too much time between the safety car lines penalty by saying, oh, that's because I did a safety car, uh, did a practice start outside the designated box and ahead of the safety car line, which I wasn't supposed to do. And he wasn't even mentioned. There was no penalty for that mm. at all. And then we've also heard now that it's possible there were some leaks from the actual steward's room to the press while the penalties were being discussed. So I just wanted to, first of all, get your general opinion on that. Like, do you think it was a mistake to penalize him or do you think it was a mistake to not penalize the clerk? And has that been a problem for you in the past? I mean, inconsistent stewarding, was that something that you experienced when you were you were in the sport? Fabulous 17 point question. So um, in terms of stewarding, when I was in the sport, it was it was Charlie. Um, yeah. And obviously there was there was the years of um, you can't underestimate how um, good a people person Charlie was, as well as everything else that he was. He was he was a fantastic people person and he was brilliant at diffusing any potential issues and coming along to the teams and coming and sitting in the hospitality and talking through with team bosses or team managers or even drivers. You know, the reasons that he was making decisions, why he was making them, what he was doing. Um, he was very, very good in the team briefings with the drivers, et cetera, et cetera. So I can't talk about um, Mario's, uh, the, the way that he is. I, I, I honestly don't know. I never I never came across mm. it. Um, so I, I don't know how he is. Maybe he's trying to put his own stamp on things. Um, there, there's that for sure. Um, in terms of... Um, so that kind of deals with that inconsistencies is maybe him trying to find his feet and trying to and trying to get his personality across to the to the drivers and to the teams. With regard to leaked from the steward room, that should yeah. never have happened. If it did happen, then that's 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 unacceptable. And and if it did come from one of the stewards, and that steward should never be in the stewards room again. If if it's ever found out, but mm. I guess we we as the public would maybe never ever realize um unless that steward just never crops up in the in the stewards list again yeah. um with regard to the pun the the penalty for hamilton God, it was a lot of questions wasn't it if you take it black and white if you take it black and white then obviously yeah. yes he has to he, ha he has to have the penalty um that's black and white um referring it back to leclerc um in previous races i my the honest answer is I don't know what I could put forward as a potential argument would be that maybe it happened and that maybe in the next driver's meeting it was discussed and maybe in that driver's meeting it was discussed and said okay that was kind of like a, a warning so I'm telling you all now drivers that you don't do that a bit yeah. like track limits a bit like um driving one side of a bollard entering into the pits a bit like cutting the pit lane um entry in brazil that time that massa got fined for it you know i think it's you know you get away with it you get away with it you get away with it and then we sit down as a group of drivers and we say okay you don't do that um you know this is this has to stop and if anyone's going to do it from now on then i'm going to have to penalize you and the next person that did it was lewis um hopefully that's a logical answer yeah. i think the speculation and the 
tin hat brigade that um, Lewis is trying to be stopped. I, I genuinely and honestly don't believe that's the case. I don't I don't think that the sport would do that, and I don't right. see the reason why they would do that, to be honest. I, I think, yeah, I think he picked his words poorly. Uh, it would be very, it would be a stretch to say that FIA is actively going out to penalise him, to stop him winning, winning a championship, and they're doing it in such a, what would be a seemingly very obvious and on top way. That seems like a stretch. However, yeah. I have sympathy for Lewis Hamilton fans, like myself, that go, hang on a minute, Something that wasn't penalised before, didn't like just get a warning. It was basically the same offence, but twice. So they double stacked the the penalties. He didn't get it before the race when it could have been a grid drop or something. It wasn't added on afterwards. It was timed and announced exactly at the time where he would have to be penalised in a pit stop and go back down the grid. And it was leaked on TV by a Finnish steward so that the Finnish driver would win and potentially get a race ban and help the, the Finnish driver catch up in the championship. I mean... Yeah, it is a bit conspiratorial and a bit tin hat, but I'm just, it's not, it's not the worst conspiracy in the world. You can kind of see why people are going, huh, and that's not the FIA, that's just that incident. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I can see it, but I, I, I don't believe it. I, one, what was interesting to me was that I still don't really understand why they brought Lewis in when they brought him in. I, I think it was just, it was Perez, wasn't it, and, and Leclerc? Approaching. But that makes no sense. Yeah. That makes no sense because he was pulling out. So in classic Mercedes this season and Lewis fashion, he got his, he broke the DRS within a lap from mm. Valtteri and he sat there two seconds or whatever ahead, was told he'd got the penalty and was pulling over a second a lap clear of Valtteri. Um, and then they called him into the pits. And they yeah. said that it was to cover the undercut from Ocon and Ricardo. But right, yeah. if he was pulling a second a lap constantly, then the undercut, what, how, what, the undercut's a 10 second undercut? Is it all of a sudden in Sochi? It makes no sense. I, I it's want the penalty. Is, oh God. It's what, sorry, Matt? It's the penalty plus. So it's the, it's the pit delta plus the 10 second penalty. And they didn't want him out. They didn't want him stuck behind a Renault. Got, and and so, yeah. so like you have to look an extra 10 seconds back down the road and they could see the times that Ricardo was already recording on the right. new tires. So and, where did um, he come out? He came out right from miles further back than that though, didn't he? Uh, I'd, I don't I'd actually have to go look at my show notes to tell you where he came out, but he, he yeah. got in front of the Renaults and was able to clear. There was one car that he had to get round basically, right? but he would have just had more cars to clear. And the other thing is that he was pulling out a second a lap then, but they were the soft tires and they yeah, were only rated for about 14 laps plus a safety car. He was definitely in the window for that. I think they just said, we definitely want third place yeah. and we don't want to risk losing more by letting you try and compete for the win. And mm -hmm. he wasn't happy about it. And I can kind of understand both points of view. And, and I, yeah, one, I, wonder, yeah, I, that. I wonder as well if, um, if they'd have done strategic somersaults to help Lewis come back whether then that's like, well, why doesn't, why doesn't Bottas get that same kind of treatment? So I wonder if there was that kind of, no, we're just going to play out our race strategy as it is. You've got the penalty, unlucky, we're going to mitigate where you come out in the field and let you go on. And that's kind of a very kind of fair approach uh, from Mercedes. A bit of breaking news that everyone missed this morning, because um, obviously we never heard about the decision with the Leclerc seatbelt. Um, the FIA are taking it very, very seriously and have handed a fine to the seatbelt for not hugging and embracing Leclerc properly in the manner in which FIA feel we all should. So that came out just this morning. Obviously, the Red Bull Honda story uh, eclipsed it. Uh, I'm getting shouted at in the chat room and the Slack group because I need to ask you about this music video 
that came out when you were CEO <laughs> of Lotus F1. I, I'll put the link in the show notes, I promise. Uh, and I shared it in YouTube earlier. Uh, Matt, who's the musician involved? David Guetta? Yep, Guetta. Guetta, is that how you pronounce it? That's how you pronounce it. It is. It is That's like... I pronounced it. The most 2013 F1, because we've changed a bit uh, since then. You know, with uh, we have grid kids now. That was a very full-on video. How much of a hand did you have in that? Um... Well, I signed it off. I agreed to it, um, but I didn't have anything to do with the actual content of the right. video. Okay. Um, I mean, that so was it wild. Was back, so if mm. if you remember back in 2013, um, so which was prior to my involvement, they had um, a, a, a partnership with Daft Punk at Monaco, where they launched the song "Get Lucky," and it was uh, it was it, it was it was pretty big at the time. And we uh, so when certainly when I came in and the results started dip. We were looking at other ways that we could try and promote yeah. or cross promote or to, in a fairly boring and nerdy way, to give our sponsors more, um, more coverage and more, view, more views and different areas that they will be viewed. It's one of the reasons that we took on um, Carmen Jorda as our female reserve driver, because mm. we felt that was opening up. Um, it was opening up other markets. Um, you know, she was, she, was, she was talented to a certain extent, but she was also, you know, she had a different reach and um, it certainly gave coverage to our sponsors. It's why we did um, a few of the other smaller little videos and viral clips yeah. that we did. And Roman and David Getter um, knew each other fairly well. The, the, ah. uh, I believe David's French. He's either French or Swiss, but both of them, they, they know each other very well. And uh, David Getter's a big F1 fan. He came to one of our races um, and the two of them muted the idea that his new song, Dangerous, um, he would like to um, get Roman involved and do some sort of uh, racing. So I said, yes, as long as the cars and the outfits all had the sponsors' um, names and liveries on them. So yeah, full race David Getz was a pretty big star at the time. Yeah. yeah, the race suits, yeah. So the race suits and the cars all had uh, had all our sponsors on them. Um David Getty was a pretty big uh, star at the time. And, uh, and yeah, it got some eyeballs. It got some views. It got some. So that was it. It was, it was purely done for a, a marketing and to help our sponsors point of view. Such a, diff- such a different time and feel. Like it's so much more kind of corporate and straight and bland in F1 now. And I love you glossing over the uh, Carmen Jorda has a, had a different appeal. Like she was marketable. I think that's entirely fair. And I'm not going to judge any company or brand for, for using that. Or we could say you were a trendsetter in pushing forward female athletes in the highest echelon of motorsport. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. no that, that is exactly what I meant. It was, it was opening up a whole different marketplace in terms of, um, you know, she was marketable in a different way um, than, than Pastor Maldonado was. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, if, if young, uh, if, if girls that were aspiring to get into motorsport could see someone there yes, yeah. in the pits, in and around the pits, you know, dressed in team kit. And um, she was doing some racing at the time and she was doing sim work for us. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a gimmick, um, but it did offer different areas to our, to our sponsors. Uh, Mark Greenow points out that he says, uh, I mean, it wasn't really full race gear on those mechanics, was it? Point well taken. Point well taken, Mr. Greenow. Uh, but yeah, anyway, it was an interesting look into the glamour. And, and I, think you're, I think you're shying away from the credit. I believe that you did the set design, the costume design. You were like, no, this is what I need. I need that mechanic there. Now champagne. I, I will be, I'll, I'll die on that hill, Mr. Carter. 
I think that was you. Is there a bit, there's a bit at the end where they're on the podium, isn't there? With Roman and him jumping up and down on the podium, yeah. I haven't watched it eight times, so I can't possibly tell you. Anyway, thank you so much for bringing uh, Phil Smirnoff. Uh, Smirnoff. Smirnoff. Yep. Yeah, to come and speak Smirnoff. to us. And um, please ask him if he would come back and speak to us again at some point, maybe after the after the season is finished. And hopefully you won't get fed up of coming and dropping into the shed either, Mr. Carter. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Well, you don't ever plug anything, so we'll have to say, could you go ahead and please follow the rest of the panel that do social media. Follow Matt at MattPT55. He's always, he's always selling something. You're always pushing something, Matt. Yeah, I think, I think we can always send them to my wife's box, right? Or at A Weaver Rights. At Goodbye, A son. Weaver Rights on Twitter. Or we could push them to our other podcast where we talk yeah. about uh, how a trombone is essentially just plumbing and not really a musical instrument. Yeah, we could do that on Remain Indoors at Indoors Remain. At Indoors which Remain I think on is Twitter. actually clever because you did it wrong, but it still was clever. I, I did it wrong and I don't know how to fix it. I wrote Remain Indoors. It just changed it to at Indoors Remain. But go check out me and Matt there. We had quite a quite an emotional, quite a chest-pumpy show on Thursday. So go and check that out. Uh, what else? Oh, me. Follow me at Spanners Ready. Follow the show at Mist Apex F1. And if you feel like we're doing a good job, and you want to help us stick around, you want to help us have the resources to go toe-to-toe with the big boys and keep up with the podcasts that have emerged during the pandemic, then please do consider going and supporting us at patreon.com forward slash Apex. Patreon.com forward slash Apex. The link will be on the show notes in your app as well. I hope you enjoyed Mist Apex podcast today. We could have called this track time, but we didn't. We weren't clever enough. We'll see you on Sunday for some more news and debate. This has been Mist Apex. Work hard, have fun, be kind. We'll see you soon. No, you said it in the wrong order. It doesn't matter. It's whatever order I say it's in. I could have just switched it up. No point coming and going, oh, you said it in the wrong order. It's my thing. I dictate what order it's in, Matt. It can't be in the wrong order. Can you believe that regardless of that, the chat room thinks this may not have been a long enough show? Well, yeah, but but Matthew's at work. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. He's got to go. Oh, let's play the oh, bumper. But... Oh, go on, go on, quick, yep. quick, quick. I was about to play the closing music. The, you yeah, know, play the closing music. Well, no, That's it. If we were on stage, one of those little wooden hooks is coming on. It's trying to hook us off. It's trying to hook us off. What is it? Go on, get your last thing in. No, I had no last thing. I, oh, hey, so. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.